Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. You were probably expecting the third part of the Miramax films in the 1980s series, and we will get to that one next episode. But as often happens while I'm researching, I fall down a rabbit hole that piques my interest. And this time, it was not only discovering a film I had never heard of, but it fits within a larger discussion about disappearing media. But, before we get started, I need to send out a thank you to Matthew Martin, who contacted me via email after our previous episode. I had mentioned I couldn't find any American playdates for the Brian Trenchard-Smith movie The Quest around the time of its supposed release date of May 1st, 1986. Matthew sent me an ad from a local Spokane newspaper, the Spokesman Review, dated July 18, 1986, which showed the movie playing on two screens in Spokane, including a drive-in where it shared a screen with quote-unquote co-hit young Sherlock Holmes. With that help, I was able to find the quest playing on five screens in the Seattle-Tacoma area and two in Spokane on July 11th, where it grossed a not-very-impressive $14,200. In its second week in the region, it would drop down to just three screens and the gross would fall to just 2800 before disappearing at the end of that second week. So thank you to Matthew for that find, which gave me an idea. On a lark, I tried searching for the movie again, this time using the director's last name, and any day in 1986, and ended up finding 35 playdates for the quest in Los Angeles, matinees only on Saturday, October 25th and Sunday, October 26th. One to three shows each day on just those two days. And, of course, Miramax did not report grosses. And this is probably the most anyone has ever talked about the quest and its lack of American box office. But with that, we're done with it. For now. On this episode, we're going to talk about one of the many movies from the 1980s that has literally disappeared from the landscape. What I mean by that is that it was an independently made film that was given a regional release in the South in 1987, has apparently never been released on video since its sole VHS release in 1988, and isn't available on any currently widely used video platform, physical or streaming. I'll try to talk about this movie, Oklahoma Smugglers, as much as I can in a moment, but this problem of disappearing movies has been a has been a problem for nearly a century. I highlight this as there have been a number of announcements recently about streaming-only shows and movies being removed from their exclusive streaming platforms, some just seven weeks after their premieres, and this is a problem. Let me throw some statistics at you. Film Foundation, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Martin Scorsese in 1990 that is dedicated to film preservation and the exhibition of restored and classic cinema, has estimated that half of all the films ever made before 1950 no longer exist in any form, and that only 10% of the films produced before the dawn of the sound era of films are still around. The Deutsche Cinematheque, a major film archive founded in Berlin in 1963, also estimates that 80-90% to of all silent films ever have been lost a number that's a bit higher than the U.S. Library of Congress's estimation that 75% of all silent films are gone. That includes more than 300 of George Melies' 500 movies, a 1926 film The Mountain Eagle that was the second film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and London After Midnight, considered by many film historians to be the holy grail of lost films. 
a number of films from directors like Michael Curtiz, Alan Dwan, and Leo McCary are gone. And The Betrayal, the final film from pioneering black filmmaker Oscar Michaud, is no longer with us. There are a number of reasons why many of these early movies are gone. Until the early 1950s, movies were often shot and printed on nitrate film, a highly flammable substance which can continue to burn even if completely submerged in water. During the earliest years of Hollywood, there were a number of fires on studio lots and in the film vaults where original negatives of films were stored. Sometimes, the studios would purposely incinerate old prints of films to salvage the silver particles within the nitrate film. Occasionally, a studio would destroy an older film when they remade that film with a new cast and director. And, and sometimes films like Orson Welles' original cut of The Magnificent Ambersons would be dumped into the ocean off the Southern California coast when studios no longer wanted to pay to store these elements. Except, Oklahoma Smugglers doesn't fit into any of those scenarios. It's less than 40 years old, it's in color, with a synchronized soundtrack. Its crime was being a small-budgeted, independently distributed movie from an independent production company that was only released in a small section of the United States and never got any traction outside of that region. Not that this alone is why it disappeared. You may have recalled hearing about David Zaslom, the head of the mega-entertainment conglomerate Warner Brothers Discovery, canceling the release of two completed films, a Batgirl movie that would have featured Michael Keaton's return as Batman a full year before The Flash, and a sequel to a fairly successful Scooby-Doo animated movie. Warner Brothers had spent more than $200 million between the two films. They were shot, edited, and scored, and ready for release. Then Zaslav decided these were not of the quality he expected for Warner Brothers movies and wrote them off for the tax break. And unless somebody at Warner somewhere down the line decides to pay back the tax incentive to the Fed, these two movies will never legally be allowed to be shown, effectively making them lost films. Again, there are many reasons a film becomes lost. In our case, it seems Oklahoma Smugglers is an unfortunate victim of being the one and only film to be produced by Cambridge Entertainment Corporation based in Needham, Massachusetts. The company was founded on September 10, 1986 and went into involuntary dissolution on December 31, 1990. So it's very likely that the company went bankrupt and no company was interested in picking up the assets of a small independent production company with only one tangible asset, this movie. So here's what I could find about Oklahoma Smugglers. The film was produced and directed by Otto Richter, whose only previous film work was writing, producing, and directing a horror comedy called Skullduggery in 1982. The film has its fans, but they are few and far between. Three years later, in 1985, Richter would work with a first-time screenwriter named Sven Simon to come up with a story for Oklahoma Smugglers. When the script was completed, Richter would raise the money he would need to shoot the movie in Toronto, with a no-name cast led by George Buza and John Novak, and a four-week production schedule between February 24th and March 21st, 1986. One can presume the film was locked before September 10th, 1986, when Cambridge Entertainment Corporation was founded, with Oda Richter as its treasurer. The other two members of the Cambridge board, company president Neil T. Evans and company secretary Robert G. Parks, appear to have not had any involvement with the making of the movie, and according to the open corporate database, the men had never worked together before and never worked together again after this company. 
But what Neil Evans did have amongst the six companies he was operating in and around the Boston area at that time was an independent distribution company called Sharp Features, which had been founded in April of 1981 and had already distributed five other movies, including the Dick Sean comedy Goodbye Cruel World, which apparently only played in Nashville, Tennessee in September 1982, and a 1985 documentary about the Beach Boys. So, after a year of shopping the film around major studios and the bigger independent distributors, the Cambridge team decided to just release it themselves through Sharp Features. They would place an ad in the September 16, 1987 issue of Variety, announcing the film, quote, unquote, opens the Southeast on September 18th, just two days later. Now, you'll notice I was able to find a lot of information about the people behind the film, about the companies they created or had already created to push the film out into the market, the dates it filmed, where it was filmed. I have a lot of sources, both online and in my office, with more data about almost every film ever released. But what I can't tell you is if the film actually did open on September 18th, 1987, or how many theaters it played in, or how much it grossed that first weekend, or if any of the theaters retained it for a second week, or any reviews of the movie from any contemporary newspaper or magazine. Outside of the same one single sentence synopsis of the movie all over the internet, I had to turn to a Finnish VHS release of the film for a more detailed synopsis, which roughly translates back into English as such. Former Marines Hugo and Skip are living the best days of their lives. Hugo is a real country boy, and Skip, again, from a better family. Together, they are the perfect pair. Where Skip throws, Hugo hurls his fists. Mr. Milk, who offers security services, takes them on. Mr. Milk's biggest dream is to get hold of his nemesis, Oklahoma Smuggler. Tape's most cherished app set, a lucrative casino. Mr. Tape is not only a casino owner, but he handles everything possible, from arms smuggling to drugs. The fight for the ownership of the Oklahoma Smuggler Casino is a humorous mix of fistfights, intrigues, and dynamite, where Hugo and Skip get the hero's part. What happens to the casino is another matter. Okay, that sounds like absolute crap. But here's the thing, I actually enjoy checking out low-budget movies that might not be very good, but are at least trying to be something. I would be very interested in seeing a movie like Oklahoma Smugglers, but I can't find the darn thing anywhere. It's not posted on YouTube or Vimeo or any video sharing service I know of. It's not on the Internet Archive. It's not on any of the Russian video sites that I occasionally find otherwise hard-to-find movies. There's no entry for the film on Wikipedia or on Rotten Tomatoes. There is an IMDb page for the film with a grand total of one user rating and one user review, both from the same person. There's also only one rating and mini-review of it on Letterboxd, also from the same person. There is a page for the film on the Plex website, but no one has the actual film. This film has, for all intents and purposes, vanished. Is that a good thing? Absolutely not. While it's highly likely Oklahoma Smugglers is not a very good movie, there's also a chance it might actually be stupid, goofy fun. And even if it's a low-quality dupe off a VHS tape, it should be available for viewing. There should be some kind of movie repository that has every movie still around that is in the public domain be available for viewing. 
Or if the owners of a movie with a still enforceable copyright have basically abandoned said copyright by not making the film available for consumption after a certain amount of time, it should also become available. This would not only help films like Oklahoma Smugglers be discovered, but it would also give the film lovers a chance to see many movies they've heard about but never had the opportunity to see. Even the original theatrical versions of the first three Star Wars movies are no longer available commercially. Outside of a transfer of the early 1990s Laserdisc to DVD as a quote-unquote bonus feature in 2004, no one has been able to see the original versions in nearly 20 years. The closest one can get now are fan-created despecialized editions on the internet. Film fans tend to think of film as a forever medium, but it's becoming ever increasingly clear that it is far from that. And we're not just talking about American movies either. When I said it was estimated that half the films ever made are considered lost, that includes movies from all corners of the globe, across several generations, from Angola to Australia to the former Yugoslavia and Zambia. They're gone forever. But every once in a while, a forgotten film can come back to life. Case in point, The Exiles, a 1958 film written, produced, and directed by Kent McKenzie about a group of Native Americans who have left their reservation in search of a new life in Los Angeles' Bunker Hill neighborhood. After premiering at the 1961 Venice Film Festival, the film was never picked up for theatrical distribution, and for many years the only way to see it was the occasional screening of the film at some college film society screening of the one 16mm print of the film that was still around. Cinephiles were aware of the film, but it wouldn't be until the exceptional 2004 video essay Los Angeles Plays Itself by Tom Anderson that many, including myself, even learned of the film's existence. And it would take another four years of legal maneuvering for Milestone Films to finally give The Exiles a proper theatrical and home video release. How good is the film? The following year, in 2009, with the new public exposure to the film, the Library of Congress included The Exiles on their National Film Registry for being culturally historically, or aesthetically significant. In the case of the Exiles, much of Bunker Hill shown in the movie was torn down shortly after the making of the movie. So in many ways, the Exiles is a living visual history of an area of Los Angeles that no longer exists in that way. It's a good film regardless, but as a native Angelino, I find the Exiles to be fascinating for all of these places that disappeared in just a few short years before my own birth. And... That's this episode for this week. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again next week when we continue our mini-series on Merrimax films in the 1980s. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, The 80s Movie Podcast, for extra materials about Oklahoma Smuggler. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 